We all tell ourselves stories of who we are and why. But we forget that we have the power to define them. That no idea grows from mewling striped gum to teeth in your throat, tiger, without a little help, some guidance, and a whole lot of love along the way. I am Jaren Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers. Hello, myopia, geekly oddcast, auto worlds, and Here Be Tigers fans. I'm Jared Surf, host of Here Be Tigers, and before I begin the show today, I thought I'd take a moment to talk about where we're going on the whole in this upcoming year and how you can be a part of that. So for those of you who don't know, we're a group of folks dedicated to the art and the act of storytelling, to the critique, the creation, the performance of. And for a while now, we've been wanting to do more of that, to create new shows, play with different ideas and episodes, to engage with you, our fans, more directly, all of which necessitated a new home online. So that's why if you go to patreon.com slash tigers, that's with a Y, you'll now find all of our shows, my Geekly Oddcast, Auto Worlds, and Here Be Tigers for free. And wonderfully, you can even sign up. When you sign up, you can receive all of them on one RSS feed you just put into your app. So that makes life a lot easier for you. Additionally, it lets us create a Discord channel specifically for our shows and for you guys to interact with us directly, to talk with other fans, to suggest ideas, to request to be on episodes. So if you go to patreon.com slash tigers, you'll find the tier for supporting the podcast as a group will be called The Podcast, and that's just $5 a month. And I know that might not be a lot for some, it might be too much for others, and that's fine. It's really just there for the folks who want to be able to get a bit more than what we provide with our free episodes. And that'll include some early access stuff to myopia and later on to new shows as well. But if you are able to and you want to, you can support us there and you can sign up for things like the live stream. The Discord is part of the Patreon tier, or part of the podcast here. And honestly, even if you can't, we just love to be able to interact with you guys, share with you the things that we like. So I'll make sure to include in the show notes today links to all of our shows, to our socials, and to where you can find us, because we're really, truly looking forward to where this goes next, and we'll only get there with you. So so yeah, if you can, subscribe, and even if you can't, just be sure to share whatever you like. You could be playing a matrix deathmatch where strings are your ability to alter the matrix to Benna to to uh you're already describing a better matrix movie well the first matrix was good but i'm just definitely describing a better one that's than the second the tale one, right yeah. yeah nope there was also the animatrix i like i said the matrix is the only matrix movie hmm. the animatrix had some good moments that's true it wasn't what i'd call a full movie well it does bring us to i think in a certain roundabout fashion what led me this the conversation today? I mean, in the general meta sense, world building is something I think all writers and storytellers have to look at. And that's how would you describe it? Mm. Okay, hold on. <laughs> you caught me in mid yawn. That's not good. Cut out the part about me yawning. <laughs> you know, if other people can post podcasts where their guests are caught mid drink or mid tea, <laughs> snort their coffee. I think I can catch you mid yawn. You can definitely catch me mid yawn, but. Um... I was just remembering the currency idea, and I'm trying to remember. Oh, the, we'll get to that. Yeah, oh, yeah. 
I'm trying to remember the uh, the overall setup that we were doing. Okay, well, would you rather I start there and walk you through that? All right, just, just start where we were going, and let's... Um, mind not worky. It's okay, we're almost near our usual initial, initial start time at midnight. You Incidentally, know. I did see that fucking rock on the side of the road. It was just leering at me from the side of the road, <laughs> daring me to swerve. Hmm. All right, so hold on. The original idea that I had was about the currency, deeper vein on religion and government, uh, world building is organic. Uh, I'm trying to remember what we were talking about before that. That was we had, When we'll tie this in, that idea of societies and the relationships in terms the dynamics in terms of what they will create in terms of bureaucracy in terms of exchange. oh you're talking about what we were just talking about recently not just that but uh, okay maybe the best way to originate to start this is to give you where my mind was that led to this okay and you can dovetail off of that that would probably be make the most sense right so, so we'll start with that or we should probably start with an introduction when have we ever started with introductions and, and which I say this time around, it should be a uh, Here Be Tigers introduction. Right, but this is not your podcast because Pablo's not here. Hmm. No, if Pablo's here, it's his podcast. Right, but Pablo's not here. Right. So this is not his podcast, nor is it yours. Not sure that's how it works, but we'll go ahead. <laughs> By the way, I absolutely adored when we were doing the the, the, the one uh, over Skype the other. You, you heard the intro on that one and <laughs> yes. how I managed to splice in... The fact that, that you made that joke, <laughs> and then it ended up working out the way it did. Oh, really quickly before I forget. I know, we're getting off topic. Yeah, because the moment you get us started on something, we want to dig into it. I know. Yeah. All right. So we'll go back to... Hello and welcome to... I believe it's Here Be Tigers tonight. Okay, might be it might be Otter Worlds, but probably Here Be Tigers. We'll we'll figure it out before right. we release. But either way, Hopefully. tonight is not Pablo's podcast, nor is his show. No, exactly. Because tonight has gone pear-shaped and he no longer exists. Exactly. For the time being. Right. So I believe tonight we are talking about um, systems. Systems, initially currency, because that is the thing that landed me on this vein of thought. But out of that, how... Well, societies and with what sense worlds develop, how you end up tying these things together in a way that's organic or how those things come to you as a creative, as a writer for a story, for a show, or if you've ever watched something and wondered, how did they, from this one thing, reveal so many others? So there's an element of talking about subtext. How can you, through small things, show big things? Mm -hmm. But also, how can you show through currency, through the exchange of goods and services or something about the valuation of the worth or assumptions of worth behind that, start to give a sense of what a world cares about. And then later on, we'll play around with a few ideas that were bounced around prior to recording and hopefully you, for your entertainment, do terrible things with them. You actually uh, um, reminded me with that, what is valuable in a society and how do you show it, um, reminded me of one of my favorite elements of the recent uh, movie, Black Panther. Okay. I'm... I'm going to try not to give too much away because I don't believe you've seen it yet. I have not, but again, I've said there will be spoilers on the show. Yeah, but that's it's it's also not just about that. It's also I don't need to give much of the movie away, but there's 
one of the elements that they established very early on, in fact, it's in the opening descriptions of Wakanda, is that there were these five tribes, four of which came together to form the uh, country of Wakanda, and one of them which retreated into the mountains because it wasn't going to be a part of it. Right. Which, of course, in a, no- in a normal movie would establish that fifth one as being the, you know, the villain. Oh my god, this is going to be... They play a major role in the movie. And it's a largely antagonistic role. But what they tell very artfully without ever actually saying is their role is not the villain. Their role is the designated villain. They're the devil's advocate. Essentially, yes. That it is important... Uh, their role is not to be the enemy, but to be the adversary. That they are st- that even though they have chosen to be a part of it, they are not only are still uh, playing roles in the society, but they are welcomed and accepted as a part of that society in the roles that they play. So one of the things that, that, that I guess this will be the one I give away. They come and challenge for the king role. This is part of the tradition. Sure. Now, when you hear that opening story, you hear, oh, there are these four tribes that were the... the is, is part of that to make sure there is a fair assessment of the worth of the candidates? They never explicitly say. But to me, that came through loud and clear that, yes, that was the part of it. That And, and I love the aspect that that they are ostensibly on the outside, but they are actually still part of the it's system. It's interesting you, you bring this up and... My anthropological, anthropological studies are a little old at this point, but one of the common behaviors in a lot of traditional hunter-gatherer societies, and it's actually been exhibited, or you could read about it in Australia as well, as something called the tall poppy syndrome. The idea that when you finally manage to catch the prize, when you manage to kill the giraffe, land the source of food, and bring it back, you may, as is your want, brag about that all you want, you feel like you should again. You know, whoever stroke, whoever made that final strike. Although in most cases, like with drabs, it was often a communal effort. If you do choose to brag about your role in this or that your ownership in what was caught, the community as a whole will bring you down. Not your sense of worth, but your sense of contribution value to the point where, oh yes, you may have helped, but all of us together did this, and all of us mm-hmm. together therefore deserve the result. And yeah, there may have been, depending on the tribe, the, those who received the primest choices of meats. To, and this is, that gets into conversations about reciprocity and mm. smaller subculture. But the the idea that worth was something to be worth, both of something brought in, but of your own self-worth, was something to be constantly redefined and negotiated with those who took on the role of challenger. Mm-hmm. If you are taking, if you are considering yourself to be too much above us, we will bring you back down to us because the us is what is important. And in a way, that's sort of the role. Like, I, like I won't go that far into the movie, but there is a moment because, okay, in in, in Civil War, uh, King T'Chaka dies, and his son T'Challa is is left. Right. Clearly, he's going to inherit the throne. Well, the Black Panther opens up with him going through the ceremony to become king. And the ceremony is a challenge. Um, And the four tribes that are a part of Wakanda are there. And they basically say anyone 
of you can put forward your own challenger to become king. Right. Because any one of the four can. And the fifth tribe comes in and says, we challenge. Now, the interesting thing is, if they were truly on the outside, if they were truly not a part of Wakanda, they would have no merit in that challenge. They would, would just be enemy. They'd have no reason to. They would not be welcome. They would not be welcome. But not only did they know the way into this place, but everyone present go, it goes, okay, they have the right to challenge. Go for it. This is... And I went, I went watched going, okay, there are two possibilities here, and they both say something really cool. Mm-hmm. Possibility one is that this challenge is purely ceremonial. Oh, like a lot of these things, technically, if the other guy won, they'd be king, but these guys might just be putting up a show... Uh, challenge because it's necessary for there to be a challenge. Right. And these are the designated adversaries. One has to convey to those witnessing that worth has been recognized. Right. Value is proven through a performed act. Mm-hmm. And the other one is the these this group which does not recognize per se the 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 the, the, the Wakandan way is the right way is coming in to do their, we're going to try to tear it down and show you that our way is better. But in, but if we if we need to do this, it means, A, we still value the rest of you, and you still value us, or you'd never put up with this, and we'd never put up because with you. Because we need all of us, the five mm-hmm. tribes in a sense, as it were, to keep the system dynamic and thriving. They've set it up so that this group is is on the outside, but not... On the outside, in a we are prejudiced against you way. Well, there, may, there was a little bit of that, but not much. But more on the someone needs to be on the outside. Otherwise, here's a good real world example of something like that. I, I believe it was Papua New Guinea, but I might be wrong on the location. At one point, they had a highly reciprocal society, and by by the use of the word reciprocal or reciprocity in, in anthropology, you're talking about a culture where the exchange of things is largely through gift-giving. So your conveyal of worth, your recognition of someone's value in society is established by what you give to them or what they give in return. And typically this often goes along with redistribution. If one person particularly, or certain individuals receive the majority of goods, it is their, the onus is upon them, or their role in that sense is to then make sure it is out, those resources are allocated fairly or in a way that is necessary for the survival of most. So one of the infrastructures here is the idea of like a high chief or a high king, the one to whom everything was given, but who also had the role or the onus of making sure that all resources, all food, everything was distributed then out from his point of control to those who needed most. And part of what this allows for, of course, is goods and resources to reach locations they couldn't have otherwise faster and more efficiently without all the infighting that would normally occur between those who had one thing and those who didn't. But here's the twist. If you were not happy with how the chief or the king resolved this distribution at a given time, it was within your right to challenge and kill him and take over from there. Knowing that if people were not happy with your job, you would likely not survive for long. Hmm. So to Take this rule, you had to have a certain level of confidence, but you also had to have the trust of the people or enough of them to prevent your own potentially inevitable death for mismanagement or displeasure at the displeasure of a significant fashion. That, re- that reminds me of um, 
a uh, story I read from the age of utopian sci-fi, which um, utopian high sci-fi can be really horrifying. Um, it's always presented as if, you know, hey, look at this, we've got this bright, shining future. But usually it comes along with a lot of justifications for some very atrocious behavior, very in, with, a, with a certain air of clinical detachment. Right, because you've removed yourself from the wrongs that always, or the ills that brought society to the brink of destruction prior to this utopia. Mm. One of the ones I really enjoyed, though, uh, even though it is as implausible as a lot of the others, but it's a lot less unethical, at least as far as I can tell. No problem. It's a, it was a society... Um, anyone could run for president at any time, including anyone from off-world. You'd be welcomed. Very often, most people ran on a post. No okay. Very rarely did someone ask for a second term. <laughs> they didn't oh, no. exactly advertise what the job entailed, but all of the executive roles... Uh, I have no idea if they had legislative roles or not, but it doesn't matter for this purpose. Um, well, the story involved of this ship had, having just arrived on World, um, and one of the more enterprising crew members is like, oh, hey, they're having an election. I can become president. And he runs, and he's not opposed, and he wins. And it's only afterwards that uh, it is explained to the rest of the crew why this was a really bad idea, because they wire his um, nervous system with... Uh, a whole bunch of receptors. <laughs> Basically, any citizen at any time who's upset with the, their lot in life, the way things are going, can, can press a button. And it will inflict pain on every every mayor, governor, president above them. Different parts of the body for different districts. The president, of course, <laughs> is for every single one of them. Yes. So if you're doing a bad job, you're going to be feeling it. Of course, the flip side of that is no one's ever doing a good job. I mean, as far as everyone's well, concerned. It's a classic statement. You only, the way you know you're a great mayor of New York is your city is if you pissed everyone off. <laughs> if everyone's mad at you, you're doing a good job. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. So, uh, and they leave it with the, the, the fact, and you, when you leave office, you leave a very wealthy person because they, you've got, they've got a pension for life and all that, that kind of thing. And you will forever be celebrated on that planet after you're out of the job. Um, During it. Because they'll be able to tell by all the scars <laughs> that when they take all the receptors out. And it's at the end of the story that all the rest of the crew members realize, wait a minute, the captain has those scars too. He made the same mistake in the past. <laughs> and left. <laughs> yeah. And of course left. And and uh, but he, he's the one who was advising, you don't want to do this. But he didn't say why. <laughs> Like I said, it's it's. Um, you gotta put your hand on the stove. Yeah. What's well, a? I've talked briefly about Nier, but one of the most chilling moments, and this isn't really a spoiler, is the revelation that as the robots which have filled in the void left by humanity on Earth try to exist, they've gone through every form of self-government they could find, but because they are pre-programmed, they always execute the development of the governments in the same fashion and fail in the exact same way each time. But then, because they are pre-programmed continue to repeat the same process all over mm. again. Which leads to, among other things, a self-destructive suicide cult, a free-for-all hippie utopia that is fully pacifist, destroyed by violence. It's just, they're so... It's so chilling when all the things you've witnessed in small increments build up to this revelation that they can't escape their own purgatory. And, of course, it's not helped when, for instance, the head of the self-destructive suicide cult is named Kierkegaard. 
God. They did their, they they, uh, they thought about things deliberately. What is the Geekly Oddcast? It's a panel show of television. I mean, seriously, where else was I supposed to go and watch a Gomez Adams ride a rocket ship on a railroad track? Gaming. And the dice say... 17. Oh my god, 17 is Mystic Quest. And whatever comes to mind. Why does Zod need a starship? Alternating Thursdays on The Geekly Oddcast. So as I often do, because it is my style as a writer, I stumble upon things, not consciously, but subconsciously, and eventually go, oh... This is why I named a thing this, or this is why these words came to me in that moment. Now, as I look upon those choices later, and find other things are find that other things have associated or are connected or attached to them. And I think with any creative, you eventually learn what your process is and mm. try to improve upon and honor that, because otherwise you're just going to shoot yourself in the foot. And it can take a while, but a fair time ago when I was working on an early chapter, see. Chapter 2, we'll call it. Yeah, I think it's Chapter 2 still. Probably. Yeah. This shows you how tired I am that I can't even remember the numeration of background chapters. <laughs> uh, yeah. A character early on in the scene is pulling shrapnel out of a wall. This is leftover stuff from the previous war and has been buried in there a long time. Highly refined metals. Uh, metals, titanium, silver alloys, stuff that is still of great value and worth. But it takes a bit of effort to pry out of effectively this wall depleted shells why is he doing this because he can trade them for a currency that is of great value and still despite the collapse of the empire that propagated it well accepted what's that currency called a full worth now when that word came to me at first i went interesting i'm not quite sure why but it feels right it sounds like it has the same uh, sort of dare the same sort of origin is maybe the word talent. Well, the... In reflecting upon it a little later, I thought about it, and a lot of, for instance, salary is derived from the payment in salt mm-hmm. that Rome used to give their soldiers, since salt was an essential nutrient to survival, preservative, and otherwise quite expensive. Most people wanted it. It was widely accepted as a means of trade or as a currency. The full worth, as I thought about briefly after that one, oh, well, clearly a full worth is a way of valuing a full day's worth of work. If you think about it, it's a way of standardizing what that means. So if I have done this amount of effort, regardless of how long it took, this is worth the equivalent of that civilization standard of one day's worth of effort. Okay, interesting, but not quite sure why that still is of importance. So that sits around for a while, and I'm eventually working on a later chapter, which is, since I alternate between past and present in the the story, two narrators, there's the present timeline where a character is visiting his friend again later on in time, finding this home he's living in with a wife and child now, at the behest of that older character's father, who has given to him a charred piece of an old metal chain, what would have been a a votive, effectively. Think of it as, you, you know like a rosary or something, perhaps. 
Now, another currency during my writing had emerged, this idea of something called an advent or an advent coin. And this had again floated around for a while as something of being of greater value than a fourth. But how much so? I don't know, just more so. Eventually, I'll figure it out. And I was chewing over this second scene in this chapter where Connor, the owner narrator, is sitting with Sophie Adams' wife and talking about why he's here, how he found them, and what has led him to wanting to come here today to impress upon Adam the need to do things. Having been given this chain by Adam's father, who had more or less given him a mission along with it. I'm not sure where the thread began, but quickly I turned away from the conversation of two people having tea in a tense moment to an exploration of, well, what is an advent and how is a full worth related? And this is what followed. I, it's not fully fleshed out as I relate to you. It's mostly what I've come upon recently. But in its earliest iteration, an advent was a recognition by something divine. And since there are people or beings who could be considered gods back in the day, those who were full of fire or those who dream too much, easy enough to view them as natural spirits or divine in a prehistoric sense. If you were to beseech or request something from them, you could make an offering. An advent then was a recognition that the offering had been seen and that they had made their presence known in the taking of that. It was something left behind as proof. So, yes, let's say this one full of fire, one who dreams too much, acknowledges your gift and acts upon your request. There is now a proof, whatever that is, if it's withered flowers, if it's a coin, if it's a piece of scale, a bit of silk ribbon. Clearly, this is something you and your family would value. You've been acknowledged and recognized by those of great power and influence in the world. But it also suggests an ongoing relationship that there's an obligation now. Do I have to continue giving to this being to continue receiving? If I've made the request for good weather and crops, should I continue making this offering? And what happens if my siblings or my children don't? Can I call upon this currency later for a greater favor or trade it to someone else? Should I ever? Or is this something too valuable to ever give up? So that in its earliest origins, the idea of an advent is not a currency per se, but an acknowledgement of, an, of, an, of a dynamic a relationship between one of great power and one of great need or community. And that question of how long one holds on to it for. Moving forward now eventually rolls around the Empyrean, a large, churning, burgeoning empire that comes out of the agrarian society, this idea of who the guards, uh, the guards, the gods are and why, and what their role in society should be. And that evolves over time, of course. But again, we return to this idea of the fourth being established as a currency, because again, an empire needs standardization. People need to know what something is worth across the entirety of the known universe so that when they go from one place to another, they can expect certain goods or services and result for that. If the gods don't give the coin, who does? If the gods are no longer the central means of power, no longer the pinnacle of control of where you must bring your worship and your respect, who gives that? The emperor equivalent of the Maitreya in this case, or representatives of? If they give an advent coin, what is that a recognition of? Well, could it be for a life's worth of work, something that is of great value or meaning, an acknowledgement that you have given something magnificent and worthy of being recognized by all? So maybe it's something that occurs after the fact. But could it also be 
an incentive, something given or offered as a reward for that dedicated effort. I was right to bring this up. <laughs> this uh, this page I, I just brought up. Continue, and okay. then I'll tell you what I brought so up. I'm, continue, I'm, I'm looking at this going, well, this is interesting. What side of society emerges out of that type of dynamic? One where you incentivize this permanent acknowledgement or recognition through this once-in-a-lifetime or once-in-a-communal. And is it just once-in-a-lifetime? Do I have to be that sage in an ivory tower coming up with a magnificent breakthrough? Or can I be a community of farmers who has taken this entire river and redirected it over time to make a field arable? Are our efforts as that village, as that generation of farmers, if it's just one family, also worth eventually an advent coin? So let's assume, for instance, I'm the sage on an effort to do the research, I need, conduct the research I need to, to be worthy of this advent coin. Clearly, my life's work is worth an F, is worth the contribution of others. If this is something of meaningfulness and of value to the community, this, the empire as a whole, others should contribute. But how do I acknowledge their contribution? How do I recognize that when I finally receive my due, so too will they? So, for instance, if they give me room and shelter while I'm traveling, what do I give them as acknowledgement so that when they go to others, they can say, I too have given to this great work? Or, for instance, if it is a community, how do I acknowledge that, yes, you're not worthy as a whole of an advent yet, but are the thousand of you each worthy of one thousandth of that, so that as a village of a thousand, you can ask for something or demand accordingly? Hence the idea of the full worth. If you have given to me someone bearing an advent or on the way to earning one, a full day's worth of contribution, I can give you that piece of recognition, that coinage, for a quarter, a full, a half, whatever that is, and you can accumulate those and exchange them accordingly as needed, because perhaps you still need to feed your family while you help me in my great work, or the farmers still need feed for your oxygen. So would it work along the lines of, at the beginning of the attempt to, so let's call it, let, let's call it the, the, work, the great work. Right. At the beginning of it, since you're doing it for the Empire, the Empire gives you a set amount of full worth stay that you can hand out, and at the end of it, you get you would get the advent coin, and if you presumably if you don't get the advent coin, if it is deemed to be a failure, presumably this system would not actually just go. Oh well, it didn't turn out the way we wanted it to well, fail. It still doesn't devalue the co- the contributions others have given. Right, those will lead to something else. Well, well, exactly. I was thinking it's I I when you've got it set up where you're authorizing in advance. It's not, you can't have it be like um, a system where it's like, oh, well, it failed, so you don't get anything. It's, or it failed now, then now we need restitution. It's, there's got to be a certain value in even the attempt to get the advent coin. If it was deemed, if it would, so, so the only way of really failing would be to fail to actually try effectively. Yes. Um which means that the hot, the most one of the most valued things is the desire to contribute to the all. Mm-hmm. And likewise, that you don't have to be an individual to earn it. That a community, a family, that single lone scholar are all in their work of equal value. Now, there is a, an economic principle that will come into play here unless there is something to take these full worths out of the system. Right, because otherwise you eventually continue to build them up. Right. You you will get massive inflation that way. Mm-hmm. So so the and you also need to have something that makes the full worth inherently valuable 
as something everyone respects. And the only way that the Empire can make sure that it does that is if it will accept Fullworth's, you can pay an Empire official, an Empire for certain services. And there are designated exchange rates for goods. Right. Well, services. that could that could be no, part of it. not designated, but there are clearly... Especially if it's something that only the Empire can easily provide. Right, as a whole, which would probably mm-hmm. suggest why there's such a need to contribute to that greater entity. For instance, one really good one, because you've got this world where, which is... It's still somewhat chaotic. You do not have, as from from our mapping episode, you do not have a very... um, Travel is not easy. No. The the primary means of... Well, at the pinnacle of the Empire, much more so. Because, again, they've been playing off of the resources like Caribbean and modifying the water. And actually, to your point, one of the things the Empire, and particularly its peak offers, those who are full of fire and those who dream too much are its servants. And there you... So that's one thing so you can in get sense, with full words. Divine, divine power. You can still get the beneficence or the munificence of the gods mm-hmm. in a way. The empire can beseech those with the might others do not have access to. Which would be great for a village, not an individual usually, but a village or a town to build up to have their constituency come together and turn over a large amount of full words to get a great. Gift, a or, great yes, or bestowal, and you know, an acknowledgement, a, a miracle, effectively. It's and then, like and then you've got that nice back and forth with the empire. And part of and what the empire offers is the ability to inter or to intermediate with these greater beings in a way that prevents them from inflicting harm, mm-hmm. inadvertently or intentionally. You've uh, the the thing I brought up, interestingly enough, um, was you sort of got a reverse of this one is when you were uh, I uh, typed in where guild. Okay. Weregild is an archaic uh, um, Frankish idea. It's the idea that uh, it translates, uh, I believe, as man price. Uh, it's a value placed on every being and piece of property. Um, so effectively, a, this table is worth a leg of a man. No, it, it was actually a monetary value. Okay. Um, but if it's stolen, injured, destroyed, that is how much the transgressor Oh, I see. It's, it's the punishment in money. If you can't pay it, obviously... You but it interestingly conveys, one, the necessity of ownership and that everything has a value or potential value to the owner. Indeed. And it also strongly implies that the Lord is the owner of everything in his domain. Therefore, if you damage any of that, you are beholden to the Lord to make right. recompense. And he, of course, will have to turn around and... You know, use the money he's getting that way but to build up his own lands. What that also allows for is a mechanism where the oh, let's say, okay, I have damaged the crop or burned down a house in a drunken rage or whatever. Mm-hmm. I probably don't have enough money to pay for that, but I do have my ability to commit labor. Exactly. So now, what the the Lord has is means by which to constantly reinforce or refresh the labor force. And, it, and it's interesting that you've kind of built up the reverse system, where it's it's the Instead of the empire, well, I mean, it, functionally it works out the same way, but instead of the empire owning everyone and it's assumed that it can just enforce this, instead it hands out the, the, the coinage that you can use to buy more from it. And what it's willing to hand out for, it, it's essentially paying everybody to do the work to do it as a form of direction, but it's, 
what it's really paying them in is in these miracles, but it's giving them the coinage to... Well, it's instilling purpose in everyone, I mm-hmm. speak. And partly, I think this was in the episode two with Ken, as we talked about the origins of some of the empire, the Toscas, where these small villages of individuals worshipping the divine-like beings after a while eventually merge into sheltered communities where they were brought to be trained. And Because think again, those full of fire and those who dream too much, mm-hmm. There's an inherent amount of danger in them not knowing what they could or shouldn't do. And highly variable, too, by individual to individual. As more of those individuals and people come to interact with those who are perhaps not capable of such things, conflict is inevitable. So what allows for those people to exist together or to mediate that or to allow for more people to benefit on the whole, to create infrastructure that allows for travel and greater resources to be, and in a sense, redistribution too. Mm-hmm. If we're able to grow the foods here, how do we in places that have the minerals, but perhaps not the foods? This, this, by the way, was going to be one of my other suggestions for what that money could do. You could turn into the the empire to do if the if you had to turn in X amount of that money for safe passage. Now that could sound like a toll, but if they also actually provided the guards or the or or the actual physical safe passages. Exactly. Then you've got a another situation that only the Empire can provide. Which, by the way, brings up another interesting point, which you fortunately have answered most of with the fact that it's the Empire providing this. Fundamentally, anytime you have a system where uh, you are having to exchange goods, especially when it's you're not exchanging the actual goods, you're exchanging a currency... You've got to have a, a functional means by which people would recognize that this was, you know, reasonable. You have to have something that means they know they're not getting taken advantage of. Mm-hmm. And you have to have a common value. Uh, one of the earliest examples why it ended up basically a couple of ancient civilizations set about to to they learned how to purify metals. Right. Not only did they learn how to purify metals, but they learned how to determine how pure a metal was. Um, if you've ever heard, well, you touchstones. Yes. Yeah. So there was a, there were these rocks called touchstones, and if you rubbed, say, gold on it, it would make a certain kind of mark. Based on its purity, it would make a different kind of mark. Um, well, and I think to your point, this is where the concepts become physical currencies. While they may have been, for instance, advents may have been a token or some rep- form of recognition that was eventually standardized or. Mm. ritualized there would by necessity need to be a physical easily well difficult to forge but easily acknowledgeable form of this is an advent this is a full earth mm-hmm. and this will always be as such which would lead down the road when the empire collapses to the acceptance of these things as currencies but and this is what partly led me to the scene with the two of them having tea yeah you can hand in an advent coin but it doesn't have the same worth anymore because it is, again, just a bigger thing than the full one. Yeah, which means you've got a scenario where you won't see it day by day, but year by year, that money is becoming less valuable. Because people don't necessarily, because it only has value as long as people think it does, and their value, and their, their belief in right. it is eroding. And by the same token, the act of giving something as an advent, as a proof that a divine thing visited you or made itself known, and giving that to someone else, to certain individuals who know about that and care about that still holds a great deal of value. Mm. So, for instance, Adam's father, 
gives him a token of something he and his wife had to Connor. So here's Connor taking a physical heirloom of this couple to his friend's house and talking with the wife who is knowledgeable about all this well. That subtext of, I have been given this thing that is an advent in the ritualized sense, in the old meaning. Perhaps I didn't know this, and the wife, Sophie, illustrates this in the conversation. I had I'd had so much difficulty working on this conversation because there's so many ways it could have gone. Talking, because Connor has PTSD, he's going to flash back, and there's some of that. But one, Sophie would be knowledgeable at all of this because she is one who dreams too much, or so she would be aware of a good deal of this, but she would more likely than Connor, recognize the act of Joseph Adams' father giving this piece of chain to Connor and why, what that obligation meant. So here, some of the subtext is teasing that out and letting Connor realize what he's bound himself into. Because, yeah, it's not the currency, the physical hard coinage he's been given, but the onus of it, the burden of mm-hmm. carrying that thing of worth. So that by the time he actually physically has the con- or he has the conversation with Adam at the end of the scene, where Adam calls him on holding into it and not giving it to him, that subtext and the weight has built up. And I didn't, I could not have planned, and again, even describing it just in the sense, it's like me trying to tell you how to write, as we were talking about previously, A Wrinkle in Time and Show Genius through floating equations. Mm. It works as a shortcut. But it's not the same as witnessing the actual act of it, of the de- or the demonstration. And I gotta say, I really like the idea that the value is tied into the duty and the effort, as opposed. It, and that's not that's not a bad system. That that functionally should work. Um, it breaks when those at the top value something more. And don't share it. it. It breaks in a number of ways. That's one, it, yeah. it breaks whenever you've got a situation where people are trading this full worth, but they aren't doing a full worth. When you right. when you degrade that concept, then you lose currency. Because value can be tied in many ways to anything. How well it, it's it stays that way is even the empire, uh, in, in its sort of pragmatic sense, it. It tied it to the overall effort rather than the individual component. Many people were getting, you know, were getting full worths for doing nothing because that you can't prevent well, that from happening. This is one of the classic issues, as we were talking about earlier, with a fully communist each to their, as it each to their, mm-hmm. each contributes to their ability. Each earns according to their need, mm-hmm. and it's not quite the same context there, but it's that. While that should, in principle, work, and kibbutzes are often a good example of that, there is still the inherent possibility that one's need by far outweighs their ability to work. It's not just a possibility. It will be true for some people. Right. And while some will be okay with that, because we have that now, Mm -hmm. fights over welfare and healthcare and other things, it becomes more difficult when... Those are individuals whose lives are bound day to day. Which, yeah, and it's also an issue of how much, for lack of a better term, how much wealth is in the society. Right. How much, well, I guess, forget wealth for a second. How much capability is in the society? Mm-hmm. Because if you've got an overall glut of capability, if you've got way more capability than you need, if you've got a post-scarcity society, right. um, then it is very possible to 
to run a to each according to their ability to to each um, according to their need scenario because you've got more than enough overall capability to handle need. You probably won't be even maxing out a lot of people's. Well, the Expanse, which is a book series and a television series on Amazon Prime, has an interesting example of that. It's post-scarcity on Earth. Everybody is given at least a minimum support package, enough to survive on. And chances are their minimum support package is actually significantly better than our lives now. Here's where there's scarcity. There's no land, because Earth at that point is 20 plus billion people. Mars has been colonized. There's conflict between Earth and Mars. And because of the fighting between the two, Mars had to divert the majority of his terraforming resources to military development. So the dream of a green Mars has been deeply delayed by a hundred or so years. And then you have the belt, which is where it's full scarcity. Everything is from oxygen to water mm-hmm. in constant need. And Earth and Mars control how much of it you get, but also demand most of what you can give. So you have different... And again, as with an empire, the difficulty becomes that likely the central portion of it will probably benefit the most from this infrastructure mm-hmm. and support. As you get out toward the fringes, and again, here's the question. If one of the major forms of power and value the, or worth the empire gives is those control effectively over those who are full of fire and those who dream too much, one, how does it maintain it and justify that control? Two, how far does it go to continue building that power up as demand increases? So there's the need for expanse. Eventually, or potentially, you run into a point where you need to continue raising those who are capable of giving these benefits, these gifts, these miracles out, if they're earned as such, or contributing to pet projects, depending. But they are still people. They still have to be raised. They still have to be found. And the further away you are from the ideological hub for why this is necessary, the less likely you are to believe in the justifications Mm -hmm. for your child being taken out of your home for the benefit of all. Even if the counter-argument to that is, yes, it's for the benefit of all, but it's also for your own protection as them being raised outside of our means of education will result in harm to you and those of your community. This is, um, okay, it's an old Scott Adams quote. I don't remember what book it's from. Uh, it's, I only mention it in the sense of it's one of those quotes that stuck with me and very much affected my sense of world building. Um, and the quote is, it is in the instinct of beavers to build dams. It is the instinct of humans to build communications networks. And the reason it stuck with me is because you look through history and that is largely true. Um, some of the great steps forward in technology and society have centered around communications networks. Rome commanded an empire because it built roads. Roads, of course, being the best way of getting communication between cities at the time. Um, the printing press as a better way of sending messages and, and communicating. Uh, the, inter- the modern internet. I mean, yes, there are teething troubles with it, but I, it's worth noting as, an, as a fun little historical note. Everyone talks about how people are atrocious on the internet. Look at all the backstabbing. Look at all the people saying things they'd never mm-hmm. say in person. When the printing press was created, 
you had the exact same thing happen with propaganda and newspapers. And Franklin. Go and look at, well, you can go to Franklin, but here's a, a it's more really fun like to go and look at Martin Luther. Oh, yeah. Look at the Reformation and the propaganda wars being run with printing presses and how outlandishly atrocious people were at, at, at demonizing sure. the, I mean, the Catholics or the Lutherans. The, or the, the art of writing epistles may have started back during the formation of the church to begin with, but it reached a form of art. Absolutely. When it became available to the public, and it's it's even funny that you've got the you've got one of the same things going on now. You turn, you pull up Facebook, you pull up you know anything, and you see people arguing politics. I don't even care what issue, and a large chunk of what you see is usually these pamphleteering, me- these meme wars. Very simple statements. They're actually terrible at communicating the full idea. But they're fun for, for but supporters. They are ideal at communicating belief and value yes. in those beliefs. And if you go back and you look at the literature of around the Reformation, you find that these these printed propaganda pieces came in came came usually in three layers. They had a cartoon for the illiterate. Mm-hmm. They had a very simple slogan for the semi-literate, and then they had a much deeper text for anyone who was capable of reading. And very often villages would have a couple people who could read, who'd read the who'd read the 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 slogan first and then they'd read the the larger piece to everyone who couldn't read. Um, but the information came on three levels, which is exactly what you see now a lot of. The executive summer is a great example of that. Why do we have the one page with the quick paragraph and then the mm-hmm. breakdown? Because Military strategists, high government officials, bureaucracy demand the need to understand things quickly and act upon them swiftly. Swiftly. But they're not full pictures. No, so a lot of context is lost. This week on Myopia Defend Your Childhood. Myopia Defend Your Childhood is so named because I believe we are short-sighted on the things we watched as kids. So every week we watch a movie that one of the panelists grew up watching and see if they hold up from comedy to cartoons or to action. And for this season, the last Thursday of each month, we're doing a TV show in our Myopia Morning segments. We watch Saturday morning cartoons and afternoon classics. So find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. How will you stand when we put your past on trial? Myofia Defender Childhood is a member of the ESO Network and produced by Dude Letter Podcasting. Those are dangerous. Yes, well, we've been talking about the issue of inflation and the lack of, and as people became um, less and less confident in the idea. But I realized I was ma- that, that we were making a somewhat of a mistake, not a full mistake, but somewhat of a mistake in assuming that that lack of faith would play out the same way it would in modern money, because modern money, of course, is backed by a couple of things. Ostensibly, it's backed by the same precious metals that are, I mean, it's not officially There's backed. actual value. There's actual of, uh, accepted value behind it. Right. Um, but right now, it's, it's essentially, it's backed by this dollar is worth X amount. This is how far you can get with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it, its origins are being backed by by metals whose value doesn't, in general, waver. It's argued that gold doesn't, there's no gold inflation, because all the gold that's ever been mined would fit 
into a medium-sized house. Mm -hmm. But actually, you could say it's not so much that it doesn't inflate as it is that because we're using it as the standard, you might as well not. You know, uh, we, we, we said it. We're going to artificially reset it constantly in order to keep yeah, it. Yeah, we're just going to consider it to be whatever it's behaving like. That's this, that is uniform. That's the new zero. Yes, that's the new zero. Um, but you've got a different scenario because in this one because value is tied to worth. It's, it's, it's tied to effort. Yes. Uh, it's, if faith goes in that, it's not that the that what's not going to go. It's not going to go that the idea of a full worth is going to fade. It's faith in it, it's it's faith in random full worths. If it's going to break down, what's uh, I think what'll happen is local areas will absolutely keep the idea of a full worth, but they won't necessarily respect full worths that come from outside because they because have they no won't idea know how that came to be or who gave it and why. So what I would expect to see in a breakdown is you would have the more trusted families in a region mm -hmm. be able to... No one would tell them that you could do this. In fact, everyone would be doing this, but only the ones that were trustworthy would be really valued, would be able to handle hand out their own full worths. You, you did us a, a service. Here's a full worth. And in the, in the local region, everyone would know which ones had value. It would be hard to trade them between. To your point, as the Empyrean expands, eventually it adopts other surrounding regions, which of course had their own communities and, and bureaucracies and governments. Mm. One, of course, is that kingdom to the north we talked about previously, which was a major breadbasket prior to the collapse of everything. One is the area ruled by is the Turnasalt, the area ruled by the Dom mm. and his lineage, and the. A third is, oh, I forget the name of it, oh, blinking off the top of my head, but effectively were, you know, the Welsh Isles or English Isles and what that would have been. And, of course, they would all have their reigning entities. How do you convince someone who sees themselves as your equal? Because, again, as I mentioned before, the one who runs the Imperium is the Betraya, which a word I came to earlier on, but as I think about it, who is going to be capable of fairly valuing the worth of everybody other than one who is enlightened to the point, as the assumption is, of seeing value in everything mm. and everyone? But how do you talk to your peers and convince them that they should bow to you? Effectively, you would need to give that, say, King of Fyodor, to give the Dom of Turnasol the right to mint at least the full worth, mm -hmm. if not the advent as well. In other words, the ability to say, yes, this too, this act is worthy of... I think, given the system, it's it, it's not just at least the full worth. It almost they has have, to be. Yeah, it has to be the added point. The full worth just comes just from the advent. Tell, yeah. If you separate them, if you have full worths without advent coins... And therefore, part of what reinforces their reliance upon you is that you allow, you create the system that gives their power continuous value. Yes, they still they still have the ruling role, but they are the only ones within their domain that can bestow mm -hmm. or relay that down. And I think, well, what I was suggesting is that what you have is is in the wake of the collapse, you have a, a hybrid system that sort of arises from the fact that people are so counterfeiting. Centralize some of that already. Yeah, as things collapse, what's to keep without a king or a dom to keep that from trickling down to the local? 
Exactly. And, and, and then soon, when there is no local authority worth a damn, the local families. Yes, and all it means ultimately is that a full worth is worth less than an advent. Yeah. What that conversion is becomes variable. Mm-hmm. And in fact, what you have is this weird hybrid system that happens as, as, the, as the full worth the, um, trickle, not, I don't want to say trickles down because that has a meaning in economics, but as the idea of being able to hand it settles down into smaller and smaller areas, it rises to meet the informal uh, promissory notes mm-hmm. and, and uh, that people would already have between them, like, I owe you this much. And soon all of a sudden it, it, it meets in the middle and you have people who are, who are saying, yeah, locally I can hand this out and everyone knows I'm good for it, but you can't take it out of the, 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 com- uh, the country or the, the area. And when it meets the, the, the official areas that are able to hand out real um, full worths, well, real for a given rally of real, Official. You, you start being able to trade one for the other. So you do a favor for the family that gives you a, its own mark, maybe carved into a wooden well, coin. An actual, more universally accepted. For a certain price, you, well, can, you can transition trade it, it over. Region and, but then you might, that you have a better chance of being able to take it out of the area. And of course, the officials who oversee that will want a percentage mm-hmm. as part of their effort in maintaining the balance. But you'd also have exactly that scenario that you described whereas it where where everyone would realize if you take a re, because you still have the legacy of the empire and this so there'd be the mentality if you take a real for the value of real full worth and you don't follow through or you didn't actually earn it you're shaking the foundations of the system uh it's it's a form of you're upsetting the boat for everyone. Yeah, because if suddenly this can't be of equal value, that means what I have, what I own, no longer has any set worth. Which means people will be much more likely. So so you have a lot more people willing to counterfeit and a lot more ability to counterfeit the wooden local coins, with the added, the, the added risk of if they catch you. The they are going to do their own justice on you. you because the harm you bring is not to yourself. It's right. Well, else. on the local ones, if you if the harm you bring is you're devaluing their personal name. Yes. So it's it's very much a matter of pride and honor. Yes. They're going to hurt you for it. But if you counterfeit the higher coins, you're shaking the ability to even you're shaking the ability to get food from the next place yes. over. And part of what's lost as the empire collapses is that. The gifts given by those who who were full of fire and those who dream too much, they disappear. Mm-hmm. Mostly they're killed off. Which means but, there are fewer and fewer stable roads. Right, among other things. And therefore, the powers that be no longer exist. Who's going to seize and take over that role as the authorities, the ones who can bestow upon and offer security and safe roads? And, and how will they... And, how will they enforce and it? Ha- and how quickly will they fall... If they lie about handing out full worths, if they, because of course there would be some in the empire like lining their own pockets and sure. handing out false ones. That's inevitable. But there, the but I'm sure there was the idea that they didn't. But if you see the new guy taking over and immediately, because a lot of what happens when a new country comes in uh, is they print their own money, yes, and then they overprint it because they need to, mm-hmm. but then it devalues. 
And that temptation is there when you're not used to it, when you're not used to... So the new guy takes over an area and he issues too many Fulworths, especially to people who didn't do them. And actually, I wonder how many times have people, have local people actually seen a collapse from just that happening? If that's part of the reason why they, they there's that real feeling of don't accept a coin you haven't earned. Because you don't know where it's from. Because you don't you, know who gave it that worth. Yeah. That value. And, it, yeah, because it might have been a, it might have had false value, and we've seen that we've been hurt by that too many times. Oh yeah, you'd end up with superstitions like, oh, that kind is cursed. Yes, because anyone who carries that brings misfortune with them, and you'd get names like, um, you know, Lord, uh, Lord, Lord Hyrus the liar, or, or, um, you know, right. You're effectively, the, in a weird way, the abuse of the value of the recognition given to you by the gods. Mm-hmm leads to a karmic retribution through the hands of the people. The the lazy king. Yeah. So, to kind of bring this full circle in a sense, since you were talking about rights of acknowledgement of the worth of a king, mm. I was writing was initially in conversation with Ken in episode two, a scene. And eventually we started to realize, no, this needs to be a full chapter. It takes place within the Tosca and those few who survive. But at one point, one of the characters who's leaving soon says, I want to hear a story since we have time for that. And as I sometimes do, I will say, okay, one character asks, which one? And the other spurts out, goes out the three deaths of Maitreya so-and-so. I'm sitting going, fuck, I just demanded the three deaths of a character who never existed until just now. My gut tells me he has to exist because other people have the stories of him, whether he's real or not. There's a story about him and it's how he died mm-hmm. three times, metaphorically or not. But it also means there's a lineage of Matreus. So what is the story? And eventually I teased out. But it comes full circle. I teased that out. What comes, where it comes full circle is that those you've got the Matreya, the, the one in charge of maintaining the Imperium. You have the Koshi, those who are effectively his subordinates who look for those full of fire, those who bring too much, bring them to the places of training, those who oversee. One of those fellows who has an advent coin is wandering around the town surveying things as he's want to. And this little orphan draws his attention to an alleyway. They start talking. And eventually he realizes this kid is picking his pockets. Now, he's been robbed before. It happens. But out of curiosity, he decides to see what the kid does with it. And he redistributes it to the other orphans in the community. It just so happens the Maitreya at the time is old and dying. So there needs to be a new one. But what happens with the selection process? How do you find someone who has the state of mind where they can preserve this system without abusing it. Each Koshi has their own idea of who should fill that void, so they bring their candidates. This guy studies this child for a while, talks to him over the next few weeks, and says, okay, this is who I believe will be the next Matria. There's something about how he thinks that should work. So they bring him to the bedside of this old, ancient, withered man who's dying of illness in a poorly lit room. You know, think of it tiled and filigreed, and, but dark. And there are servants in the corners, sweeping and cleaning up. The man's probably soiled his sheets or something. It stinks in here. And the child is instructed to sit down in a chair next to the old man, who leans into his ear and says, more or less, I'm going to tell you something, and it's going to be terrible. If you cry, that will be the end of it. And he whispers into the child's ears, the reason everything has to be the way it is. Why... Those full of fire and those who drink too much are treated the way they do. Why this coinage? Why everything is the way it has to be? Why? And it's horrible. 
because the religion that mandates and justifies all this, while it may be true, also insists upon abuse and negligence and control for the preservation of all. And as the child is listening, a light flickers in the corner and he sees, pooling through the tile, the bodies of all the other candidates who've had their throats slit at the first tear they shed. No one else can know, except the next Maitreya. So of course, if they cry, they're not capable of handling the truth, but no one can be told. How do you ensure that? Well, no one was going to miss them anyway. That's the first death, the first death of the last Maitreya. That moment of realizing, one, I can accept this truth and understand it, and two, that was the end of, this was the other fate that awaited me. And this is who I will have to become if I wish to keep things safe. And I looked at that and went, dear God, I wonder what the next two are. Hmm. The second one, in short, is the realization that, yes, everything worked. But as we talked about in the first episode, there was stuff put in the sky that's coming back down. And what they've been doing is accelerated that severely. There is a sign one day that this is all going to come crashing down soon. So how does he take what they have available? How does he use what's left, the powers of those gods that be, those they've raised, to save who he can? And back to that question of what will break the empire? What will cause the system to fracture? If those who are being taken from don't believe the act is worth it, if their children are being taken away and the gift or the boon being bestowed does not come back to them in some way, if that promise of this faith saying, no, all of this is for the betterment protection of all, doesn't follow through. And I'm sitting there teasing out the three deaths of the last Maitreya and his justifications for the building of that ark. Why he dedicates so much life and resources in this vain, desperate effort to get those he can off the earth. And everyone else around that who leaders of the other kingdoms around look and go, we can't, or can we justify this continued existence? Can we continue to serve this munificent leader? Or has this hit the end? In a sense, has the leader fulfilled his promise of earning that advent that we, in a sense, should be acknowledging, or has he not done his full day's worth of work, but is asking us to instead? I could not have planned any of this, and I don't say this is like a finite or this is just stuff I've continued. Because as you ask the one question after another and start to see where these few things tie in, where the origin myth we talked about of the two brothers ties into how the views of those who dream too much and those who are full of fire. You've got the older brother who climbs and tries to catch the sun and gets pulled back up into the sky. Those who were full of fire in the empire are eventually sent up to replenish him. That's just part of their nature. That sacrifice is honored, revered. But all of that is for the preservation of things as they are. If the lie comes, if the truth comes out that you can't preserve it, if that system breaks down anyway, the faith is a lie, the currency is a lie, the sacrifice is a lie. So yeah, if it's not an apocalypse in the sense of the world physically collapsing, it's your understanding of the world that no longer rings true. And Therein is, lies the death of the Empire. Which, by the way, you sort of started to answer what an Advent coin would be in the wake of the 
empires collapse. Because what was it doing? What was it placing that final bit of value on? That arc, whatever it was, whether it was a real arc up in the sky, it was an escape. It was a a promise of something greater. A better future. And now I remember, not the exact language, but the Maitreya promised that once again man would fly. He found proof that we had once before. And now that we could again, if he could commit enough to the work. How widely do you think that was believed? Do you think, especially in the way in the fall of the Empire, people pinned their hopes on that, that it had to have been worth it? I think when he first promised it during the early signs of the world starting to break down of those old systems prior to the Empire and period that go predating all Mm -hmm. this back to when the other hemisphere burns away. I think before the empire starts, before that revolution begins in, in earnest, there's a belief that yes, this is the this is the achievement of all of us. This is the pinnacle, yeah. the reason why. But as that stresses the systems in place, as people continue to give and contribute, and the generation passes into the next, the work doesn't finish. The need becomes more urgent. Do you think people still believe that there was a path made, but mo- but they are the ones left behind? I think to a greater and greater degree that becomes the prevailing opinion, particularly from the outskirts coming in. Now, final question. Do you think they believe there's still a way to find that escape? I think some of them probably join in the war in the hopes of getting onto the Ark because they think it's possible. Just that they're not being, they won't be among those invited. I think there are others who are going, we could survive if this effort weren't being that we could live somehow if you were not wasting everything we have on this. Because it occurs to me that if... Okay, so this arc happened, but people don't know what the arc is. You know, they... they, they well, in they, the now, in the present now. No, they, they, all they know is they think of it as an escape. Yes. Okay? And, we, and they don't really have a clue of what it entailed. If that's the case, then what would become the advent coin of that modern period where is that would be... The advent coin would be a clue, some relic thought to, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, and maybe maybe that's a different, whether it does or doesn't, for each one. Right. But it's thought to lead to where the Empire or the Maitreya made that escape possible. It's a promise, it's a clue to a promised land. It is a promissory note. It is a promissory note. So... One of the reasons that it hasn't entirely broken down is because there are There's real still hope that it could be ch- exchanged for something of greater worth. Right. A clue, something, so that those questers could have it, so that those... And if there's enough belief in that, and it doesn't need to be everyone believing in that, it needs to be enough that a, a large chunk of people are trying, maybe 10%. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because the... Those leading the war in the, in the past timeline, Dolores, the New Dawn, they believe the Ark was true. They believe there's proof of its existence. They just have to find it. The survivors of the Imperium are the ones trying to stop them from getting to that information, from finding the resources, the remnants, because as far as they're concerned in their culture and history, they ruined everything. And therefore, they should leave that alone. That was the wrong way. Let that be. Let it go back to the agrarian, as we talked about in episode one. And now here come these interlopers. But they can't destroy 
these things that people are starting to call Advent coins because that would be degrading their own power. That would be degrading their own, that promise that they're... I think on one end, yeah, there's still that desire to want to believe. And if Mm -hmm. they destroy the last remnants of it, that it means all that was for naught. Whether it happened or not, there's no proof anymore. So now you've got... There's no sign of the gods. So before, an advent coin was just something you could... That, that, that was literally a pay for a, a um, miracle. And now it is a clue well, to what may be a different kind of miracle. Proof that you were worthy of asking for one. Proof that you were worthy of asking for one. It was a very real and material thing. And now it's a clue. It's a lost... Peace. I did like what you said with the promissory note. Oh, that's that's good. It's funny you bring that up because the episode I just did with Ken recently, we were talking about a place mostly removed from the world, all the way off past Australia toward the Long Night Sea, which they go to in the present timeline called the Hayakla or Hayakla, corruption of the lonely tree. And I said to him, my gut told me this is partly a remnant of the Ark. And as we were talking, what we sussed out is, what if it's the construction site? Because something that big would need to launch from somewhere remote and be safely either the construction site or enough of it was assembled, regardless of whether it was launched elsewhere. So you have the remnants of that. You have early on probably the anchorites who would go there seeking that freedom. You'd have those few who could dream too much or were full of fire going to find it to be the only place left where they could be themselves without harm to anyone else because it was sparse enough. In a sense, even if it were not a most a literal tree, that it was spread out and branched enough for you to go and do your own thing. But over time, people making a pilgrimage, finding these, as you're saying, relics of things left behind and wanting to go there to find the proof to believe that something could still be invoked if we could get the gods to listen, if we could find them. Mm-hmm. And since there are people who are too full of fire and those who dream too much, or if those who are full of fire and those who dream too much, you know those who are full of fire do rise up. Not those, necessarily in a way you can use. And not necessarily you, in a way they might want to. Yeah. But then again, no one really knows the details. No, it's just those few remnants of it may more. For all they know, it may still be possible to turn those in. It's, in fact... It's entirely possible that some people have tried to hitch a ride on those who rise. It probably hasn't ended well, but no one's ever come back to say whether it did or not. So where's... I'll I'll leave you with this then. One of the relics on the Hayakal is a statue to a fisherman who had a daughter, or so the story goes, who fell in love with the star that fell from the sky. And the fisherman and his people were so furious that she had gone to live in love outside of their people, that she fled with him with this spouse to the bottom of the sea to hide. And he, in turn, planted a seed in the the ground that drank the entire ocean to find them. Only when he did, he learned that they had adapted to living in the sea and gaspingly died, leaving behind just their child, which, as he tries to reach out, flies to the sky. Interesting that planted seed that drained the entire ocean. I think it was a Larry Niven book, but I am not positive. Um, one of the concepts in it was of an organic space elevator. 
it actually was an alien parasite. No uh, they didn't realize it at first because the benefits of having a space elevator are absolutely staggeringly enormous. Oh, yeah. Um, but the problem is that it drains the planet dry. Um, but a seed planted that would drain the entire ocean, that much water would create a tree that could go into space, which would be really useful and could be a possible interpretation of the legend. It could also be that when you are building a space elevator, you probably want it to be near the equator. Now, based on what you were talking about with Australia, that seems a little too far south, but if it was just a staging area, as they constructed and then moved out to one maybe they had in the ocean, they would have needed to clear, potentially, the water away and have this mechanical thing rising into the sky, which would very much have looked like planting a seed that drained the ocean. And you've got a... That's one potential meaning of that story. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is why I find it fascinating when people look at the idea of world building and go, oh God, why? As an exercise, but more importantly, how? For me, I find it's like a lattice work. I can lay out bits and pieces intentionally, but a significant portion of it just grows in the spaces between. Mm -hmm. Until I look one day and go, oh, that's a pretty flower. I wonder how it got there and eventually find all the roots of everything I put down before are tying together. It's not conscious, but eventually it reaches that threshold where you see the iceberg above the water. Are you someone who wants to feel like you belong in the world? Do you want to be heard in this journey we call life? Well, I'll tell you what, you are. My name's Sophia Lobano, host of Here and Now Podcast where each week we talk about all things faith, hearing loss, and lifestyle. Join me as we discuss living in the here and now and finding our call as children of God. You can find Here and Now podcast on all major podcast platforms, as well as my website, sophialabano.com, where I upload transcripts of each episode to be accessible for all our listeners. I hope to see you soon, and just remember, the world is a better place because you are in it. And God is calling each one of you to be something special. I do want to play off of one idea we had prior to this recording, though, because I think it'll be a fun exercise and show how you can start or seed the idea, as it were. We had talked about the trash island that has been forming in the ocean. It's now five times the size of Texas. And I thought, why not, to your point earlier, since you had said if there were ever a community fully of libertarians, it would surprise everyone. (laughs) Why not establish a small commune of libertarian kobolds on this island? Oh my god. Alright, we're going to have to do this quick because I probably have to shut off at at one. We can, but... I think, if nothing else, we can germinate the idea now and then invite the others to play with it later. I think, well, alright. Let me pull up these uh, village creation rules. So for those of you who are unfamiliar, one of the things we like to do is take rules for story games and occasionally apply them elsewhere. This is, of course, the game No Country Full of Cabals, which you can hear Dave, Pablo, and I doing a fascinating performance of in Outer Worlds, I think a couple month, weeks ago. Uh, yeah, right? a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, it's mostly Pablo's fault. It's, uh, I believe it was the uh, episode Variations on a Theme 2. Yes, it's also incidentally the one where we play a Coen Brothers movie. 
Uh, that was so much fun. <laughs> God, Fiasco never ceases to surprise me. I, the day it does, I think we have to stop playing it. <laughs> or find a better pack. <laughs> so, um, basic ideas. Some of these are going to be important. Some of these are not. Okay. Uh, the stats for the village are supposed to be things that... They're supposed to represent your group of kobolds as a whole. Um, they're, they have very mechanical effects. Uh, I think they'll only come into play for this exercise if for the um, the lower high end. Well, uh, things that would be appropriate to libertarian kobolds on a garbage island. So here, are your, you, the five stats are hardiness, ingenuity, teamwork, secrecy, and warfare. Remember, you know, those are actually pretty appropriate. <laughs> the um, the premise of well, no country for old kobolds is that kobolds are small and squishy in a world that hates them, and uh, they're very much outclassed. So I think isolationist humans living on a tiny island in the middle of the ocean qualify. I don't know that you can say tiny if it's five times the size of Texas. Tiny in terms of how much of their ego they can fit onto it. Yeah. Inside of it, yes. Um, so yeah, hardiness is actually a measure of um, how how good the kobolds are at bouncing back. Uh, it is it is a measure of how well you know, how fast they breed and how well they steal the plagues. Let me ask you from a narrative standpoint. I think, would you want them to be both hardy and ingenues, or would you want one of those to be... I think if you want an actual, if you have an actual society of intentional libertarians, the highest prized one on this list is going to be ingenuity. Okay. Because it's, they had to have the idea that this was possible in the first place. And get out there. And get out there. Or convince people to let them go there. I would say the second highest is um, hardiness. Secrecy and warfare do not strike me as being things either they're, they're good at. Individually, they might be crack shots or anything like that. But the idea of maintaining an army or anything like that, it seems... It seems um, mm-hmm. Militia? Yes. Army? No. So I wouldn't put warfare at the lowest, but I wouldn't put it at the highest. Um, teamwork is entirely dependent on the group that came out. It's not a function of... <laughs> I think teamwork, interestingly, would be defined differently by each one of them as to how good they were at it. Mm-hmm. Um, but moving on to the rest of the, the um, village. So the basic way it would work is that um, each person would denote like one of the surrounding countries or areas or something that's a threat to the village. Usually that comes in along with either an external pressure because that right or or it or the kabolds have something that is needed. Because the thing that immediately came to my mind was sharks or tiger sharks or flying sharks. Because again, who knows what's out there? Um so Let's see. Let me define these two. Wants are things that your Kabul village might need. Okay. And um, external pressures are horrible things that can come crashing down. Now, in early days of the the, sto- of the, the game, these were not too well distinguished. But fundamentally, the idea of want clocks on the, on the game is that your village, or in this case, your country five times the size of Texas, needs... Your sovereign... Gobblinoid or kobold nation. Yeah, you uh, needs this to survive. If it doesn't get it in a certain amount of time, they are going to die. And they have an active ability to go out and try to get right, that so thing. A great example of this is potable water. 
potable water would be a perfect one, yes. So I'm, in terms of structuring for the rules, or in this case, the narrative, we know in all likelihood if they're living on a floating garbage heap in the middle of the ocean, having something to not dehydrate from, or the ability to not dehydrate is of prime importance. Mm-hmm. So let's just sit on that for a second. Let's say we were starting the story to touch upon an earlier conversation with the why now. There are two things that come to me as a way as a beginning point. Either they've just devised a new means by which to capture water finally mm-hmm. and successfully, and they're going to try it out. And however that goes is, of course, defined upon the story. Or they have finally mastered that one thing at the cost of something else. Uh, one thing that occurs is they may have just cultivated a new food source, a new hydroponics thing, but that means that they need five times the amount of water. Have you read The Life of Pi? Uh, no, I have not, actually. It's been a long time since I read it, but I believe toward the end of it, he finds a kelp island where the kelp itself extracts and refines water out into a a non-salinary form. So part of his relief at that point is devouring huge amounts of this, getting enough water, and finally relieving himself because he's been eating nothing but dried goods and other things and fish. So... His body's kind of desperately in need of solution, as it were. You could, for instance, have them at some point, or we could begin the story with them finally discovering that discovery of somewhere on the island, that kind of resource, Mm -hmm. the kelp that naturally refines water into a potable state, which might be the beginning of the first war or the first murder on the island. Mm Mm-hmm. And in fact, you could even set it up as if you're going to do a libertarian paradise, one of the natural um, areas nearby, not everyone's going to be on the same page of this. So it could be that there are different factions within that are part of the same experiment, but that have become enemies. Right. For instance, they might have joined forces for the need of finding potable water for everybody, but upon discovering it, Mm -hmm. the argument over how to distribute it, why, under what means, and who owns what of it, could have led to that first act of violence. So, should we flesh out a couple other ones then? Yeah, let's, I mean, potable water makes sense on a trash island. I would, um, like, the first thing I would look to after that is I would go, okay, you have a trash island, and fundamentally that means this is not regular land. What does that mean? It, um, and a couple of the things, and some of the obvious ones are, well, you, you know, dirt that you could actually grow things in is at a premium, but let's go with a, a different one. You don't have a normal um, fertilization cycle, a normal like uh, cycle of things rotting, nitrogen-fixing bacteria, and all of that. Nothing's been established there yet. Um, so maybe you have the dirt, but you don't have enough of a way of keeping it fertile and you're running through your supplies. So you either need to keep going out and getting more and bringing it back in big barges full of dirt. Right, which means either finding finding somehow a means to trade something of value on the island mm-hmm. with the outside world in order to get, for, to get arable land. Mm-hmm. Or you need to figure out um, a way of getting enough other organic material for composting purposes. Well, you know and you're talking about, about composting to feed an entire 
town, not just a family. I think there's an inverse ratio between the number of kobolds and the amount of arable land. That's true. I mean, we are talking kobolds. Yes. Not people, of course. Yeah. <laughs> And and of course, and certainly it is true that uh, um, certain yeah sometimes when the village grows too much you're going to have like issues that wouldn't have been there before. So, for instance, treatment of the dead. Mm. Do they have a rich? Do they have a culture of composting everything? Well, see, here's the thing: if this were a classic game, I would assume that they comp that that, that that they they recycle everything. I will always remember the line from Alpha Centauri: <laughs> "It is every citizen's final duty." To go into the tanks. <laughs> I kind of feel like the ingenuity would lead to that somehow. Yeah. Well, at least in one faction. I would think so. And you've got Soylent Green as Kobold. <laughs> Kobold Yellow. Um, some external pressures. Pardon, are... me, pardon me. Kobold Blue. <laughs> That's terrible. You just see the blue flames emerging. <laughs> That was a very interesting one um, that I found out recently. Blue is the most recent color. Oh, yeah. And it's not because the color didn't exist. It's because how we define colors has changed over the years, and, and we've added more and more. Blue was always the hardest and most expensive to make. Mm -hmm. It was ridiculously expensive, in fact, I forget the saga of Prussian blue, but we should look into it one day. Yeah, well, that was the Keep first. Broadcast. That was the first time when you could. I think that was the first cheap blue. Yes. Um, before then, it was aquamarine, mm -hmm. and oh, was that expensive? Well, lapis lazuli and other things were used to create it mm -hmm. because there are very few natural sources of a blue pigment. Interestingly enough, there is one very readily available when you get to it. But most, but Europe didn't have access to it until the New World really opened up, and that's cornflower blue. All right. But that's, and I don't think that would have been as popular because it's a faded kind of blue, but it's still blue. Just more into a purple. I think we need one more world to kind of round this out, and then we need one or two external pressures. Yeah, uh, clearly murderous seagulls. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about giant rat people. No, it's banana raptors. Oh, well, I was actually thinking uh, um, tin can hermit crabs. Oh yes, you because, never know when you're scrounging up for what freezeable oh, parts. For, forget tin can, the, ch the, the chock full of nuts coffee can hermit crabs. Oh yeah, there you go. Enough to take off a hand like a coconut crab. Or maybe they were coconut crabs initially, but they floated on coconuts to the trash island. There you go, and colonized it. Okay, that's one of the pressures. Mm -hmm. Ravenous coconut crabs. Ravenous coconut crab hordes. <laughs> Which mega raccoons. And mega raccoons. That means you trash what? pandas. You literally <laughs> like tra panda sized raccoons. <laughs> yes. Trash pandas. Yes. Who eat nothing but aluminum. <laughs> oh no. They, 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 they eat kobolds. Well no, they either if they eat aluminum, they come in and they eat the village. They eat whatever it's it's made out of. Or they eat actual kobolds. You know, I just realized the thing you will say to elicit a cry of joy from your village: "We've got crabs!" Ah! <laughs> um, so we need one more want because crabs are not it. No, crabs are not it. Um, 
Okay, my guess is we've gone we've gone with water, which is the standard. We've gone with dirt, which is the nature of the island. Now I think there should be something from the nature of the fact that you are you're in a very unfamiliar terrain. I think there's a the most uh, the I think there's a, a nutritional problem. There's a, a trace element like scurvy or something like that, mm. but it wouldn't necessarily be scurvy because you've got a lot of canned fruit. Tetanus. Well, tetanus could could certainly be. Um, yeah, if you've got. Yeah, that's fine too. An island full of metal and rotting garbage. Well, technically, tetanus it would be disease in general, but tetanus and typhoid. Mm. Just the, the the whole slew of Oregon Trail wonders and mysteries. I think I think in that one, I really want it to be a, a, a uh, obscure uh, malnutrition issue. Yeah, that, yeah, because just not having gout. <laughs> Even all that shellfish. <laughs> because they've got nothing but crabs. You yeah. have I cobalts. Scurvy, if like if they don't have the fruit or something like that, scurvy. Well, because they have to fight they, they have to fight the crabs for the coconuts, and if they don't eat the coconuts they get scurvy, but if they eat the crabs they get gout. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. It's a it's a bell curve pressure system. You also need I mean they're cobalts. They might need like some substance to grow their scales properly because they're always molting. Technically, would they want to eat the shells too? Then chitin. In fact, yes, that would be a good way of doing it. They need the shells. We need the shinies. <laughs> okay, you're thinking something. Yeah. Well, I'm just trying to think of. They need a, They they need the shells. Yes. And they also need a metal because they're cobalts. That's true. And they can eat aluminum. But it's not, it doesn't work as well. What would they want? Um, what they would want? They need iron, but it can't be iron oxide and all of the, it's right. too rusty. So what they need is they need a, they need a foundry. They need to be able to purify iron. Which means they need fire. Which means they need fire. So, like I said, but they need—it's not just a little fire. They need hot. Yeah, they need fire. a cobalt blue foundry, <laughs> a burning bright beacon. Well, that also be so people can see the island from a distance to ship the dirt in. So uh, I will leave you with this because I've got to go. That's like, true. Um, but uh, I was—I've re- been reading this book. It's a material science book, but uh, it's very interesting. It's got two chapters. One that very much it, it, it um, hit the Roman Empire or was it around the Roman Empire and one that was around the Chinese um, and it affected profoundly the way the two cultures developed or the, the, each one affected for the Chinese it was um, uh, porcelain okay. um, and the fact that uh, expensive to make very much associated with the empires themselves. It, um, and it promoted this entire idea of the, the tea ceremony just to show off the capabilities of mm-hmm. porcelain. But porcelain is not see-through, but which is not that important for this stage of it. But uh, how much of a secret it was and how profoundly it affected their culture because it was such a rare material... And was so highly valued. And was given as gifts, but the secret of how it was made was never... Well, I will give you this then. 
the one main export where they're trading for the soil? Bone China. Oh, there you go. The Founders of Crematorium. And not just Bone China, but it's going to have like a specific color. Oh, yeah, because, because they're the metal. From the metal and from the crabs and the coconut. Mm-hmm. In other words, it doesn't have the traditional blue of porcelain. No. It has cobalt blue. Cobalt and it'll blue. be known as cobalt blue. Exactly. And if you guys think we're being crazy, look up Fordite. It is the mineralized paint from factories, of, from car factories, that is now used in jewelry. Because after decades, we now have a new stone, or technically mineral. So the... Um uh, it, so it was very interesting. It, a lot of the chapter was talking about the material science of it, but I, I loved how much it affected the, the tea ceremony. And why I bring that one up is because there was a different material that caught on with the Romans the Roman. that they went crazy over that largely the Chinese ignored, even though they may or, they, they probably had the ability to make it, they just didn't value it. Because they didn't value it, it, it profoundly affected what they did and did not invent. The Romans loved glass. Oh, yeah. They really got off on it, including making, you know, beverage glasses out of it. But they put it everywhere. Uh, one of the things that means is that that the countries and the civilizations that followed Rome were very used to being able to see into their beverages. And the <laughs> countries that followed China were not. Right. Uh, which means that that uh, European beverages had to be more aesthetically appealing, like visually, mm-hmm. um, which is why a lot of effort was put into various brewing techniques and stuff like that. Uh, it also means that um, Europe was much more situated to develop things like the, uh, the, the um, telescope and the microscope, I believe the telescope might... It was actually an Arabian invention, but they had glass, too. So we will leave this then for when we can get either Stephen or Pablo or someone else in next time. Mm. They will begin by describing to us a cobalt tea ceremony. (laughs) Incidentally, we've managed to get the full episode without you introducing yourself. (laughs) (laughs) I am David Herman, a.k.a. Ram Nessus of the Brothers Herman. (laughs) Anything you want to plug before you say who you are on the outro? Oh, just uh, the Geekly Oddcast. I mean, that is uh, me and my brother uh, run that one. You can uh, find it wherever you find your podcasts. Uh, we alternate back and forth between uh, pop culture and role-playing games. And I'm your host, Jared Surf, and frequent guest on the two shows, Auto Worlds and Geekly Oddcast, as well as a few others. That's another time. And yes, we are... Going to cut it off at this point because I don't know how late it is, but it's we are... one o'clock. Perfect. We are on time. Yeah, well, sort of. <laughs> it's 106, always, whatever. It's Pablo's fault. Yeah. Yeah. And Stevens. Of course. Which is always. why they're beginning by describing us the t-shirt while punishment. <laughs> all right. Good night, folks. So that's all for tonight. If you like what you hear and you want to show you as a born, you can subscribe to us at patreon.com slash hearbedires. That's with a Y. For a dollar or more. There are all kinds of rewards, including access to our online workshop and Discord. Of course, if you have a story of your own that you'd like to share, or have us revise, you can write to us and 
my name dot my last and you need diaries. See you all next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.